Hi, my name is Adam Beeler, Head of Institutional Sales at Angelo Capital Advisors. Today I'm joined with two senior portfolio managers, Johannes Paulson and Cheryl Pate. Johannes, you've been here for 12 years and really the groundbreaking of building this financial services business we have here at Angel Oak. And Cheryl, very tenured career prior to coming to Angel Oak. You've been here for more than six years now. The point of today's discussion is to explore the opportunities that we as a firm are seeing across financials, both in equities as well as debt. But Johannes, I'll first go to you. Most people know Angel Oak Capital Advisors for mortgage credit. And now we are learning the significant amount of dedication that you, Cheryl, and others have put into this division at Angel Oak, and really our business overall. Can you discuss the evolution and dedication that Angel Oak has to the financial services industry? Sure. Thank you, Adam. Yeah, you're right. Most people know Angel Oak as a structured credit-focused shop, but the reality is we have been very involved in the financial space for a very, very long time. I joined Angel Oak in 2011, and we were really trying to figure out how we could expand the focus of Angel Oak into different areas. Many of us come from the community banking space, and we really wanted to figure out a way to involve that expertise into the Angel Oak offering. Initially at Angel Oak, we started a little consulting firm, really focused on the community banking space. That consulting practice grew to a point where we were doing 90-plus assignments for banks in 30 different states. But in 2014, we really saw an opportunity to expand that offering and align our practice to the broader focus of Angel Oak on the asset management side. Subordinated notes have become an instrument that banks were looking at and something that we were introducing to our clients. We thought it was a great opportunity for us to start investing into the space. In 2014, we made our first investment into the community banking space. Since then, we have invested in 300 different banks, roughly $3 billion in assets, and currently hold about a billion and a half on assets on balance sheet. I think it's also important to note, when people think about banks, it always seems to be this discussion of very large banks, or in recent times, the banks that have failed. I think it's interesting to point out that there's 5,000 plus other community banks in this country. Some would say perhaps we are overbanked compared to other nations. Cheryl, Maybe you can go into a little bit more detail of the areas of the markets that we do like in community and regional banks, why we like them, and perhaps why we stay away from other larger type markets. Yeah, absolutely. You are correct. There are 5,000 plus banks in the United States, and the bulk of those are community banks. And when we define that universe, we look at banks that are 50 billion in asset size and below. There certainly has been a trend towards consolidation going all the way back to the 1980s, we had 14,000 banks. So consolidation has been a theme for a long time, but we're still arguably overbanked, specifically when you look relative to other developed countries where you have one bank for every million plus in the population. We're one to roughly every 65,000 people. So there's a lot of runway, and we think that is one of the key alpha generators that we offer across our strategies. When we think about the community banks and why we like that business model, I think very differently from the large cap banks that are very diversified into maybe some more volatile business lines like capital markets and trading, even contrast to the regional banks, which have grown fairly rapidly over the last few years and expanded geographies, sort of multi-state, but have also, I think, reached a little bit for growth in their lending portfolios into non-core markets. 
what we see in the community banks, I think, is very different. They tend to be very locally focused and very relationship-driven, and quite frankly, what we term boring banks. They stick to their knitting. They do their traditional lending and deposit relationships. And it's pretty plain vanilla and well-disciplined underwriting. Now, Johannes, I think most institutional allocators are very familiar with the historical trends of trust preferreds. used to be a very well-trafficked asset class. But now here we are with subordinated debt. Could you talk a little bit about the structure of subordinated debt and why a community bank would find that debt attractive? The key here is that subordinated notes are capital eligible. They count for tier two capital for banks. And that's really how banks are using it. Larger banks have been using subordinated notes as a part of the capital structure for a very long time. But really, in the wake of the great financial crisis, there was some shift in regulatory environment where trust preferreds, which were the preferred instruments to supplement the capital structure for banks, were disallowed. During the great financial crisis, the regulators also introduced TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, which was really designed to help banks get through the great financial crisis. But they had a very interesting feature where the rate on the underlying notes would increase from 45 to 9% at the five-year anniversary. As banking system was healing in the wake of the great financial crisis, they were really trying to figure out how do they pivot and how do they grow. Equity valuations were muted. It was very difficult to issue new capital. Trust preferred had been disallowed, TARPs had repriced, and they were really looking for that new instrument to help fuel M&A transaction and help fuel growth. Subordinated notes were the perfect instrument, and that's really where the subordinated notes took off for the community banking space. The unique part about the subordinated notes is that there are 10 no-call five fixed to floating. That means they have a 10-year final maturity, they have a five-year fixed rate until the first call date, And from then on, they're callable on a quarterly basis and floating rate on a quarterly basis until the maturity. These notes start losing their capital eligibility in the final five years. So in year six, they're 80% capital eligible, year seven, 60%, and so on. So the likelihood of these instruments being called away prior to their final maturity is not only based on economics, but also the capital eligibility. Banks are issuing these notes, especially the community banks, for capital purposes, not for funding purposes. They get a lot of other opportunities to fund the balance sheet at a much cheaper rates. So these are really designed to help bolster the capital base. And Cheryl, from an issuance standpoint, we have seen significant growth up until 2023, where it's taken a little bit of a pause. Perhaps you can give an update on the past three or four years What has that issuance been specifically in community bank subordinated debt issuance, not the SIFIs going out and doing deals? But what has that market looked like from a growth standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. Community bank subdebt has really been a growing market since about 2014. And I think a lot of the dynamics that Johannes spoke to, the IG rating, the yield duration, and the volatility profile really helped this space garner increased attention coming out of the COVID pandemic. Typically, this had been $4 billion on average type issuance market for the community bank cohort, which is that $50 billion and below size base again. What we really saw was an acceleration in the maturation of this market. Coming out of COVID, we saw $11 billion of issuance in 2020, and it held steady around $8 to $10 billion, which is what we've always said we expect in a mature market for this asset class. 
2022 certainly did have some sticker shock, if you will, as rates moved up as quickly as they did. We saw about 100 basis points on average per quarter as we moved through 2022, and that did impact primary market issuance. We do think that as the current market volatility in the banking sector has begun to subside, we're getting closer to the reopen of the subdebt market again, and we think it'll follow a pretty similar path to what we saw during the COVID reopen, which is namely a lot of the bigger banks in the space coming out with larger deal sizes. And again, these are probably the cleanest of the clean balance sheets, just a very easy story for the market to digest and reset the opportunity set. We are hearing anecdotally of some conversations that are happening and some mixed shelf filings that are happening. So I think we are close to that reopen over the next couple of months. And we think spreads will be very attractive. If we liken it back to the COVID reopen again, spreads were north of 500 basis points when that market reopened. We think similar context in terms of the opportunity set going forward. And you hit on something there when you talked about our proprietary modeling structure. Johannes, it's probably a good time to bring up our bank surf model. What is bank surf? Why did you and Cheryl and the team? think that it's important. Where do you see that model continuing to grow and grow? Over the last several years, we have created a very robust underwriting process. What the BankServe model is, it's quantitative engine that takes advantage of the public information for banks that goes back all the way to the Great Recession. It has a lot of data available and built on that data to give us a credit rating for every bank in the country. So we can quickly input the information for the bank and come out with a quick rating that can give us a status, so to say, on that particular bank. What the model can also give us is geographic trends. We can monitor migration in ratings, either up or down. We can use this as a buy signal or a sell signal, or just very, very quickly assess the credit quality of that particular institution. It's a very robust model, again, that takes advantage of a lot of data available on the FDIC database. You talk about bank equities, you talk about bank debt. Most recently, you continually get asked about rates and where you think things are headed and what's the health of the banking sector. I guess, two-part question. First, what makes you nervous about the current community and regional bank market. Two, what gets you really excited about the opportunity in those markets? I'll address them both together, but I think if we step back a year ago, the issue that we had really carefully been monitoring had been the rapid growth in investment portfolios. And a lot of that related to the stimulus and excess liquidity that came into the sector during COVID at a time when loan growth was anemic. Banks really invested that excess liquidity into long-duration assets, predominantly things like agency MBS, which, while guaranteed by the U.S. government, suffered large price declines as rates moved so rapidly upwards over the course of 2022. What that did was result in unrealized losses in investment portfolios, as well as impacting AOCI and capital levels. So that's been the issue that we have been focused on for the last year or so. I think what the regulators accomplished in March when they came in and took some proactive measures, the bank term funding program, the BTFP, really allowed banks to widen the eligible assets that they can pledge to the discount window to include things like agency MBS, but most importantly allows them to pledge that at par. That's really important in that 
we're not going to see forced liquidations of money good assets to satisfy normalizing liquidity conditions. So we think a lot of that has been addressed by the regulators. Clearly, there's more to come on the regulatory front. We do think you're going to see higher capital, higher liquidity, enhanced liquidity management, increasing consolidation, ultimately a revamped deposit insurance program, which is a little bit longer tailed. But we think a lot of these actions continue to strengthen the banking system, particularly important to us as debt investors predominantly. Things like bank management teams taking more proactive stances to move even more defensively, tighten lending standards, increase liquidity, diversify their funding profiles, boost loan loss reserves. All of that continues to strengthen the banking system at a time where there is a massive dislocation in pricing. In terms of what we're concerned at looking forward, I think commercial real estate is probably the most prevalent and certainly the most talked about in the news. And I think it is important for us to really understand the type of commercial real estate, specifically that community banks hold. And so systemically, we are most concerned about office and specifically class A office in major metropolitan areas. That is not what community banks do. Community bank commercial real estate lending tends to be more multifamily oriented or strip center lending in suburbs, in rural areas, service oriented type businesses, your nail salon, your dry cleaner. We feel pretty good about that risk relative to office risk, for example. Not to say that we aren't expecting credit normalization, but we think banks are well equipped to handle that. When you look at the loan loss reserves that they already hold, which is higher than pre-COVID levels, we expect that we will continue to see additions to the reserves in this environment. But also, I think commercial real estate tends to be a little overstated for the community banks. And that's because a lot of the data is coming from call reports, which is a collateral-based report, whereas community banks are purpose-driven lenders. And so the disconnect there being you may have a traditional commercial loan that the community banker is also asking for a personal guarantee and any real estate to secure against that. That will show up in the call report as a commercial real estate loan, despite the fact that that is not the purpose of the loan. So it's a little bit overstated, but office overall is about a quarter of total commercial real estate. Of course, not all of that is class A in the areas we're most concerned about, but a lot of that is in CMBS, in the larger banks, and not the cohort that we're focusing on. So we think it's a manageable risk looking forward, but a lot of the changes to the banking sector, I think, will generate an acceleration in M&A activity, and that is a pretty big positive for the bank debt that we invest in because smaller banks tend to be acquired by bigger banks and you see spread tightening and price appreciation. I think that'll be particularly evident in this cycle, given the depressed pricing that we are seeing on the debt side today. Maybe just to round out my comments on the equity side, I think we've looked back historically at how bank equities perform when you look at a crisis type period and then the resulting 12, 18, 24 months forward. And it's pretty compelling, the rebound. I think on average, it's north of 20% rebound the following year. So despite some of the changes to come in terms of regulation, valuation is very depressed. We think a lot of this is already baked in the price, and you will see some rebound in bank equities as well. So I think the opportunity set is very robust across the banking system today. Johannes, maybe you could talk a little bit about 
something we coin as, you know, talk about internally consolidation rate within our portfolios. But what do you think M&A looks like going forward? Do you see mergers of equals? Do you see big bank by small bank? Where do you see that trend going from here? Yeah, it was interesting to hear Ellen speak and she highlighted the fact that there needed to be more consolidation in the space. Consolidation has been slow over the past months, primarily because of the hit to the tangible capital base as a result of the unrealized losses in the investment portfolio. Going forward, I think we will see mergers of all kinds. We've seen about a 5% consolidation rate in the industry over the last few years. I would not be surprised to see that accelerate. I think there will be mergers of equals and there will be larger banks buying smaller banks. But I would not be surprised if we saw the number of banks cut in half over the next 10 to 15 years. I think there's going to be a significant increase with higher regulatory burden, more capital required and greater liquidity, as as Cyril highlighted earlier. Great for the debt holders, but I think it's going to be very difficult for the banks to manage through that environment and just to create greater efficiencies, size and scale may be important. And I think that's going to spur consolidation as we go forward. Can you just give an example of when big bank buys small bank, what happens to that bond? Yeah, there's typically a correlation between the size of a bank and the particular spread that that bank can accomplish in the market. So a larger bank can issue debt at a tighter spread than the smaller banks. So when a larger bank acquires a smaller bank, there's really a spread tightening that takes place in the bond that we hold in the smaller bank. These bonds are not callable until the first call date, so these banks have to assume the note. The spread compression creates a price appreciation in our bonds, and oftentimes we see somewhere between 4 and 10% price appreciation as a result of these mergers. So been a great alpha generator for our portfolios. We've even seen a greater consolidation rate within our holdings than we've seen in the industry as a whole. So it's been very accretive to our strategies. Johannes, I'd like to ask you another question on existing subordinated debt. It's trading in the secondary marketplace. Let's just say a real live example that we are considering or looking at somewhere, you know, 10 to $20 billion community bank. Maybe it's the third year into their five-year sort of non-call period and is trading at 60 or 70 cents on the dollar. Is that truly a misconception or is it sort of the baby in the bathwater scenario? Well, bonds are trading at very, very attractive levels at this point. It would vary on different things like the coupon and the remaining maturity. But the prices that we have seen, and interestingly, the secondary market has been evolving very rapidly over the last few years, given that we are one of the most active players in this space. We are probably the most active players in the secondary space as well. And trading in the secondary space can be very, very accretive as well. Given the fact that we are so active, we have really great intelligence on all the holdings, where things are trading, where the opportunities are. And that's really been another great alpha generator in our strategies, being able to take advantage of dislocation as they come across to the price dislocation that you mentioned earlier. We've been invested in subordinated debt for several years. We have risk retention vehicles, we have more liquid vehicles, we have hedge fund, we have hybrid, we have all sorts of ways that we invest in this asset class across the angel oak complexes that pertains to financials. How does our portfolio look? Where do you see opportunities? Our portfolio has held up fairly well. As 
Cheryl indicated earlier, we like to invest in boring banks. Typically, our universe of investments are banks with less than $50 billion in assets. So we've been able to avoid some of the credits that have been in the headlines lately. We have always said we are looking for good quality banks with good management, with an effective strategy and strategy that they can implement. It's a boring thesis, but a thesis that has worked really well for us. Cheryl, it seems as though real money buyers have been trafficking in this subordinated debt space for quite some time. They enjoy the investment grade rating, the duration of the assets, the credit quality of the underlying those are all the reasons that they step into this space. Typically, insurance companies have a cheaper cost of capital than most asset management firms and hedge funds and others and alike. Where do you see the current opportunity going? Meaning, how long do you think this opportunity lasts to be able to put capital to work in this market? Yeah, I do think you raise a good point. This is a space that historically has been dominated by insurance buyers call it 60% of the market, banks had been a large piece, another 20% maybe, and then asset managers sort of filling out the rest. In the current environment, we don't expect to see a lot of participation from banks. I think that opens up an opportunity set for other asset managers and firms like ourselves. There are undoubtedly changes coming to the regulation and management of banks, but I think the bottom line is opportunities like this are rare and finite. A couple catalysts that we think about in terms of trying to size the time period that this opportunity exists. I think when we get to the end of the rate hike cycle, that is an important piece. We are clearly going through issues in terms of rising deposit cost, deposit betas. When we get some stability there, I think that's helpful to the system overall. And frankly, the other piece is going to be the market volatility that we're seeing on bank equities continuing to calm. So I think those two factors really play into when we get back to a more normalized opportunity set for bank sub-debt, and that's in the next quarter or two, perhaps. So it is sort of a near-term opportunity to participate at these really dislocated-type pricing. Well, Johannes and Cheryl, thank you. I truly appreciate your time. Again, this podcast was really meant to be educational. Where are we finding value? Where are we putting money to work? Our thoughts, our opinions. And thank you again to all of our partners, our clients, our prospects. As always, you can always get in touch with us at Angelo Capital. Thank you. <music>